0: Welcome back to Luxi, the podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science of luxury items. We've been away for a bit, settling into our new life in Greece. We've also been thinking about season two of Luxi. Season one was a bit of a mashup, starting with a solo host and seemingly random topics, and evolving into this co hosting relationship and focusing on the materials that make up fine jewelry. Now, for season two, we've been inspired by all the amazing ancient and modern art that we've seen while we've been exploring Athens, so we're going to spend this season discovering the science behind visual arts.
1: Yes, and how the eyeball works.
0: Yes, that is a part of our first episode. But I suppose we should probably reintroduce ourselves, right? Demos? Okay. So I am Dr. Lex. I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology and a master's in public health microbiology, both from the George Washington University. I've worked for U.S. government health agencies, small and large nonprofits and philanthropic organizations and private drug development companies. This podcast was born out of my experience running a data management team that was involved in HIV and COVID clinical trials. COVID highlighted for me how many people felt scared or intimidated to engage with science, so I decided to to start talking about the science behind the things I like. And since I've always been accused of having rather expensive taste, Mm. we started there.
1: (laughs) All right. Sounds good.
0: And now Demos.
1: Yes, I have a uh, PhD in power electronics and reliability and also in material science. At Virginia Tech. And I also did my master's degree there in electric vehicle specialization at Virginia Tech. I worked for a lot of large companies like GE and uh, also for the government uh, helping um, spend money wisely, tax mm-hmm. dollar money wisely, as well as doing my own solar power company and doing a little bit of work for a space startup in Seattle. Um, I um, have always been excited about music and audio, and that's one of the reasons I'm also the audio engineer for Dr. (laughs) Alex, And uh, that's part of our first introductions. I guess we're ready to dig right in.
0: Sure. So, I mean, just a question for you, Dimas. What do you think of when you think of visual arts?
1: I think of portrait galleries, and I think of photography. I've I've enjoyed photography as a kid. Um, I... I love the science of how photography works. I'm not a great photographer, but I do like the chemistry behind it and all of that, which I look forward to in the next episode at some point.
0: Yeah, yeah, we can definitely get to photography. I think of all those things too, but you know, I have to say that I've been experimenting a little in the uh, non-fungible token space. Not no, myself, no. i do oh, not terribly... Visually artistic. Mm-hmm. But um, I've been following some interesting NFT artists on Twitter. Yeah, so we have a lot of fun topics, but I thought for this first episode of the season, we should start with the basics. And one of the basics around any art is color.
1: Yes, and how the eye sees color is a very interesting basic that I. Didn't realize was so cool. It's I, really I don't know how
0: basic it is, since it's actually, I think, rather complex how we see color. Is that Agreed. correct?
1: It is complex. It starts from early and simple origins. However, the uh, complexity uh, really is evolutionary, uh, going from simply turning light into energy, into turning energy into perception.
0: Okay, we'll take it away, Dimas. Okay.
1: Yeah, I will take it away. So if you just kind of type in how the eye sees color or whatever in Google, you'll come up with statements like the spectrum of color ranges from 700 nanometers to 400 nanometers. And that might be useful in some ways if you like to think of light that way. But I think most people really are more interested in how the light, how the eyeball works. And for example, if we know that the frequency of, per sound, of sound is perceived across a frequency spectrum, like on a guitar or on a flute, or on uh, any sort of instrument, we have we have a color of sound, but we also have pure frequency. Um, whether one note is played, higher note or lower note, is all about frequency. Mm. Photons carry energy from light sources, but they have a wave characteristic that makes them carry frequency as Mm. well. It's actually one of the strange quandaries in physics is the wave and particle nature of photons because photons have no mass, Mm. and yet they carry energy, which is a really strange concept in a lot of ways. And not only that, photons carry information about where they came from.
0: So so frequency is basically just whether something's higher or lower or more or less than something else.
1: And photons carry pitch the way sounds carry pitch. Hmm. So you can have high-frequency photons and low-frequency photons. An important parallel is the existence, also, of the Doppler effect. You know, when, like, a, a, an ambulance or something is moving towards you at a high rate of speed, it sounds like it's high-pitched, and then when it, as soon as it passes you, the pitch changes to a hmm. low note. Photons do the same thing. Astronomers who can look at light from galaxies uh, can tell very easily that a, a known... Light source like the burning of helium or hydrogen in the sun or a star is shifted um, quite a bit from what we know when we look at the color of light when we burn the exact same element on the earth.
0: Is that how a part of how they know how far away something's come from?
1: That is, and it's also part of how we know how quickly the universe is expanding cool as well so we can make some very simple measurements about just how the change in the color of light of a known element uh, is shifted by mm-hmm. the um, speed that um, and that is all captured in what's called the doppler effect cool there's also the doppler effect which is that a bad idea seems smarter as it's coming towards you faster <laughs> than when it's going away
0: All right, well back to eyeballs.
1: Okay, so as an example of color frequency, um, let's say we take the perception of a fruit color like an orange. All the wavelengths of the visible spectrum are absorbed, except for the specific wavelengths that we use to process as an orange. So that is reflected back to our eyes. Mm. What is absorbed depends on the arrangements of electrons in the atoms on the surface of the material. And we went into that a little bit with some of our previous podcasts yeah, yeah, about yeah. gems, yeah. Because you know, like how you dope a gem changes the creation, changes how the electrons are arranged in a diamond. For example, you could have a pink diamond or a blue yes. diamond. Yes, um, that's an extreme example. But what's interesting is like um, the these organic chemicals have a lot of opportunities to have some really amazing colors because there's a lot of electrons on these molecules. We So an orange peel can absorb the other wavelengths of light, but it doesn't absorb let orange, so that right. comes back. Once the orange wavelengths reach the eye, the cones that correspond to that wavelength are stimulated, mm-hmm. and the information is passed to an optic nerve to the brain to be processed. Uh, the visual cortex then converts this stimulus into what we perceive as color. I mean, in the end, all of these things are quite arbitrary, Yes. But it's interesting that the from brain to brain and human to human, we have more or less a similar understanding of each color. Yes. So we can talk in terms of color, which is pretty amazing. It's not. It's not random.
0: Unless it's you and I talking about what color to paint the walls in our house. There is no doubt. That <laughs> and then we are, could not are, agree on what was what color the paint was. There,
1: there's no doubt that there are differences in how <laughs> the um, eye. Um, registers that and that has to do with the amount of cells of a particular type and their sensitivity Mm. that can vary between cultures and between uh, men and women by a certain amount and certainly by other uh, genetic factors yeah question for you yeah
0: you might not know the answer to this so it would be interesting for me just out of curiosity is whether your the color of your iris has any impact on how you see colors because i know that so i have Lighter blue eyes, mm-hmm. and I know that because of that, more light hits my retina, mm. which puts me at a risk for some retinal degeneration diseases. Um, so I'm just wondering if that would potentially be part of why we see colors a little bit differently.
1: I don't, I don't know to tell you the truth. My research didn't go into that much detail. Mm. However, what I'm going I'll to Google it later. Yeah, it's worth <laughs> that. What I'm going to cover is just really the basics of how the eye works, Mm -hmm. I think it's quite sophisticated and complicated. Yes, it Um, is. It is amazing, though, in that it all works. Yes. So let's let's dive into a little bit about how a cone, Mm -hmm. which is not a rod, so we have two ways to measure photons and packets of light coming into our eyeballs, and there's rods and cones.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, one of the interesting things is we have three different types of cones Mm -hmm. that correspond to a broad sensitivity to a reddish light, Mm -hmm. again, for green and for blue. Yes. Uh, Those um, long, medium, and short wavelengths, if you will. So the long wavelengths are like red, and the majority of the human cones are of this red type, second most common being then the green and yellow. They are about a third of the cones in the human eye. Mm -hmm. The third type of cone represents the short blue wavelength, it only makes up about 2% of the cones in the human retina.
0: That's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and so there's quite a huge difference in, in the three different types of cones that we have.
0: I might have a, a potential theory for why that is later, or okay. a consequence. It's probably a consequence well, a of, consequence. of I'm... having the red uh, focused or um, okay, having more red cones.
1: Okay, I think I know where you're going with that. One of the things that I can say, though, is as you go up in frequency, the amount of energy the photon carries is much increased.
0: Mm, so, you don't, so maybe not need as many. So you ones? don't
1: need them as much, and it's probably one of the reasons why the light, uh, like blue light, is even though we have so few cones, mm. we're extremely sensitive to blue light. Yes. And um, for that reason,
0: I have my phone on much. no blue light.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah we are, and it, it's so much sensitivity that you only may even need two percent of mm. those cones. Cones tend to possess a significantly elevated visual acuity because each cone cell has a lung connection to an optic nerve. Therefore, the cones have an easier time telling that two stimuli are isolated. So even though cones are less efficient at processing light than Mm -hmm. rods, Mm -hmm. cones have much better accuracy in where that light has fallen. So what that means is a different cone that's measuring red light mm-hmm. is going to be well separated from that same cone right beside it that's measuring more green light. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. When a photon enters the eye and falls on a cell mm-hmm. of, of a matched wavelength that, can, that is more sensitive to that particular photon frequency, a series of reactions happen in response to this photon entering the cell. There's a photoreceptor protein of, of a family of proteins called transducins. These are key elements used mainly by vertebrates as the beginning of a chemical reaction that's used to amplify the photon's arrival. I read this my, as an electrical engineer. <laughs> I was just uh, amazed that, that there's amplification as very similar to the way we amplify light in um in sensitive photoreceptors i
0: mean why reinvent the wheel right
1: yeah i know i mean essentially if you know biology you're going to create better engineering
0: That's why bioengineers are such interesting people
1: it is really amazing uh there's a protein called retinol not to be confused with retinol Mm -hmm. but it is a vitamin a producing protein most things
0: with a retin uh, are yeah, associated with vitamin A, and,
1: and it's uh, as for all those uh, chemists out there, it's a retinaldehyde. It's a poly polyene chromophore. I I think chromophore in Greek would mean a mover of, of color. So um, so I have a feeling what that's really trying to say is that it's a, a a molecule that is color sensitive.
0: Yes, and the polyene is just again it refers to the structure. So it's just several structures within the molecule Got it. Okay. yeah chemists are not particularly um, overly creative namers of things mm. which makes it easier
1: yeah right but you can have, you can, you can
0: t- have an idea of a, of a structure of a molecule based on the name well which is handy in any case
1: that simple um, that that this simple uh, chromophore uh, is protein changes its shape in response to a light uh, strike Mm-hmm. So when the photon hits the the protein, the protein folds in on itself quite quickly. Um, what's interesting is the way it does this is not uh, is is not, if anything more than a response in a the the movement of this change of this protein mm-hmm. has to do with the trapping of the energy of the of this. And in a way, this is a form of energy containment, not may or, not very different from a solar cell. In fact very simple cells that had this same uh, protein we use this instead of chlorophyll as a way to create this adp a uh, cycle yeah for um for generating energy inside the cell uh, when this happens the disc there's these little discs that make up the cone the disc changes shape too briefly um there's another thing that happens. There is a creation of new enzymes in response to this change in shape of the protein that multiplies the effect of it by a factor of 100. And then there are additional proteins that engage with those new enzymes that multiply that effect by another factor of 1,000. Mm. So you have a single photon causing a 10,000 uh time increase in the response this changes the shape of the cell but also changes the flow of it shuts down the sodium pathways in the membrane of the cell the result of that means is that cell membrane changes its voltage relative to other cell membranes that have not received a photon okay and that difference in cell membrane voltage is measured by a bipolar cell which converts voltage into a stimulus for a ganglion
0: Oh, for the nerves.
1: Yeah. And then the ganglion transfers that to the optic nerve, which goes to the brain.
0: It's really astounding to think that this happens continuously in yes. your eye. Right? And like that it like,
1: just over and over and over again. Yeah, so like right
0: now I'm just looking, looking at my notes, looking at you, just looking around and and it's really to me a bit humbling to think that all of that is just cycling through.
1: Yeah. These pro, these these retinols are opening and closing and opening and closing so quickly and changing the voltage of the sembr- mel- cell membrane mm-hmm. as quickly as i can watch television
0: yeah or even
1: faster than that yeah. even yeah. cuz a lot of people cuz you need can to also see.
0: have a little bit of time for that signal to get to the brain and yeah. interpret what you are seeing
1: yeah exactly it's wow that's true so yeah that was the first thing i thought too is i can't believe that these effects are so quick and that the brain is reacting to them so amazingly mm-hmm. fast and that there's there you know there's 120 million of just the red cones yeah. in each retina. Yeah. So the fact that it's happening at such a massive scale mm-hmm. makes the idea of what we're doing in terms of digital imaging with cameras and everything else almost seems so crude <laughs> and really kind of embarrassingly simple yeah. compared to what's happening in and our own eyeballs.
0: And humans are not even um, necessarily the most interesting color seers, right? Like there's other species that see... So we are red, blue, green, yeah. which, if you go by the very scientific Latin or Greek naming, is trichromatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, but are there other? There are other species yeah. who see, a even a fourth. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And that's a, just even a higher frequency. So that would be in the the violet range. Ultraviolet. Yeah, yeah. Ultraviolet. Ultraviolet. So, yeah. so violet, ultraviolet. So yeah, and so that means for. For like fish, I think fish are one of those. makes sense to see
0: ultraviolet, especially if you're living underwater.
1: Yeah, yeah. nothing like going into an aquarium. And they're always dark, makes (laughs) you wonder why. And there's always that one glow-in-the-dark aquarium, which I always love. Well,
0: it's probably always dark because fish probably, maybe their ability to see or to handle the red end of the spectrum is probably maybe a little bit less.
1: Not a lot of red end of the spectrum down there, is there? No. But there are red fish. Anyway, enough of my time. Now let's let's switch over to you.
0: I don't know. That was really time. interesting. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so I took a little bit different route, which is good. So yeah, we're not exactly. talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things I want to know about something new we're looking into is to know how to talk about the topic. Most occupations, and scientists especially, have their own language related to their field. Uh-huh. It's very specific to their field. It sure. can be difficult even for people like us who have spent our entire, not entire, but most of our lives in science to decipher the language of another scientific field. Yes,
1: yes. Even within our field.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was first reading this topic, I came across the mention of color theory, and there seemed to be quite a few different color theories, and I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be difficult to wrap my head around, Mm -hmm. right? Like, are they competing theories? Are they synergistic theories? Will I have to know all of them? But fortunately, I kept reading because it was actually really fascinating. And there's some great resources out there, which are going to be in the show notes, to help us all be conversant on the different color theories. Okay. So I'm not going to cover all of them, but just the ones I thought that would be most pertinent to our conversation. So the first two are the additive and the subtractive color theories. And these ones are found both in art, and I guess just in art in general, Mm -hmm. now that we've moved more to digital art. Yeah. And they deal with either mixing light, which is the additive theory, or mixing pigment, which is the subtractive theory. Okay. So an additive color theory describes how light creates color. And this is what your camera, your phone, your television, the computer all use to create color. Okay. And this model starts with black, and then red, green, or blue light is added to produce the visible spectrum of color. For this model, adding more color equals lighter until you get to white. Mm -hmm. So this is the color theory that you learn when you're little, right? Black is the absence of color. White is the presence of all of the colors. That's the additive color theory that's based on the light in
1: the visible spectrum that way. Yeah. If you're thinking about a television or a a monitor or, Mm -hmm. or any sort of light source, that would be the best way yes. to think about
0: it. Yeah. But the subtractive color theory, and this is what I learned recently, We I got to be a, um, a guest on the Who Arted art podcast, which I mm-hmm. really like. Yeah. And um, I learned a bit from from uh, the host about the subtractive color theory, which is what artists use. Instead of light, you're using pigment to create the color. So printing, silk screening, painting. And in this Color theory: the colors are cyan, yellow, magenta, and black. You know the colors of the toners of your color printer. Yes,
1: and the colors of when you're developing uh, when you're developing film.
0: Yes, and so the pigment is added to create the color. Yes, added to create the color, and the color gets darker with the additions of more hues. You start with white. And theoretically, you would end with black, except as we all know, for back when we were little and we picked, mixed all of our paint Nothing. colors together, oh, no, perfect. you get kind of brown. Yeah. And yeah. that's why there's actually a black, like, toner color, because mixing yeah. equal parts of magenta and cyan and yellow doesn't actually get you
1: true, pure black. Yeah. Something close but not. Close.
0: Yeah. So these theories of color are linked to more how we see color. But there are other theories, sorry, there are other theories of color that are linked more to how we see color, right, as opposed to create color. And so there's a trichromatic color theory, which you just talked a lot about, you know, we have red and blue and green cones, and every color is a combination of those. There's also the opponent process theory, which is where perception of color is mediated by color channels.
1: And for a while, people... Like in your brain, color channels? Yeah.
0: So for a while, people thought these were opposing theories of color. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they're not. They're theories of color for different parts in the whole process of you seeing a color, right? So trichromatic, like we said, is how the cone receptors detect different wavelengths of light. The opponent process theory is how those cone receptors connect in the nerve cells, and this determines how we perceive the color. Got it. So yeah, so the trichromatic one is how we detect the color, and the opponent process theory is the interpretation of that
1: color. Oh, okay. Yeah, process. It's an interesting name for it.
0: It is an interesting name. And I didn't go down a deep dive to all of the um, sort of cellular molecular levels of what that entails, um, partially because, you know, you you do hit a bit of a wall with color perception theory, especially when it comes to brain functioning. Yeah. Like you can say, okay, people who are red, blue, uh, red, green colorblind don't have functioning green cones or something yeah. like that, right? You, you can sort of experimentally figure that out. When it comes to how you interpret color, it's really hard to do that ex- experimentally yes. to find the exact processes. But then I, I kind of, that took me down a different little rabbit hole to the language of color. Mm-hmm. As we indicated, Deimos and I both have very different perceptions of color, which has led to some interesting discussions when we're talking about painting walls.
1: Yeah, but I think we also have a lot of similar tastes in art.
0: Yes but i am also currently trying to learn a new language yeah. i'm trying to learn greek and i thought it would be really cool to look at research around how we talk about color in different languages oh. because to be honest there's not a whole lot of similarity between the colors in greek and the colors in english
1: mm. you mm. probably I'm don't know about the, like the words that the are
0: words used. yeah the actual word for the color yeah yeah and, and and this could be my lack of familiarity with the greek language but there's not as many Names for colors in Greek.
1: But, like, for example, orange is called orange in Greek, and it's also the color orange. So, yeah, at the, the very word least, is, the same fruit.
0: Yeah, no, 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 I know, but the word is very different. Portacali sounds nothing like orange. Mm-hmm. And in our episode on oranges, we got into, we took a look at the different uh, histories of how those words diverged. Yeah. But so I found a paper um, from the protocols of the National Academy of Sciences from 2017 written by Gibson et al and they focused on color categories of warm and cool right mm-hmm. you know warm is all the yeah. red orange yellow cool being all the blue green purple and they theorized that there these are not universal categories across languages so what they did to test this is they adapted different methods of interpreting something called the world color survey and this survey originated in the 1970s to investigate the findings of two scientists, Berlin and Kay. And they had this hypothesis that there were universal rules or principles for naming colors across languages. Okay. So what the survey originally did was they had 24 participants of each of 110 languages <laughs> look at things like colored chips um, to see, okay, if I say blue, tell me which chips are blue, they'd point out the ones that... They think correspond to blue, and they also did some questioning designed to find the smallest number of simple words which the participant could use to name a color. This is blue. This is red. This is orange. You know, instead of this is aquamarine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. burnt sienna. Or you know, yeah, no, yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So these authors used three language groups: um, an indigenous population in Bolivia called the Mene, which I am probably am not pronouncing correctly. English speakers in the US and Bolivian Spanish speakers. And they collected uh, similar data using the chip, color chips, mm-hmm. but then they laid on top of it an information theory, so more of a um, data science way of looking at the data, mm-hmm. to find a way to rank the colors for their relative communication efficiency within the language. So basically, how well does this word communicate the color? Yeah. What was interesting is that they found that color categories within a language reflect a trade-off between how informative it is yes. and their number. You don't want too many color categories, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, because cool. at some point you get too, it gets too confusing, apparently. And this is a reconciliation of a couple of views that people used to think that color categories... One theory is that color categories are universal. Um, there's universal principles that underlie them, and there's another argument that the color categories arise from the culture. So they're all very different. There's not some uniform underlying theme to color categorization across languages. And this kind of brings them together. It says there's this there's there's some universal principles around naming color categories, but there's there is this trade off that at some point culturally it doesn't become efficient. And so that's when you'll get to Can I difference. ask a
1: question? Is are the primary colours a category?
0: No, we're talking warm or cool.
1: Warm or cool. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So, another in, so cultures do show common naming practices for colors. However, warm colors are more precisely communicated than cool colors. Okay. And this is where I said it might be because we have more red cones.
1: Um, okay.
0: But their hypothesis was that there's a link between warm colors and what they called behavior, behaviorally relevant items in the environment. So they took 20,000 photographs and analyzed the colors of the object of the photograph. And they found that the objects were more likely to be warm colors and the background was more likely to be a cool color. And so they argue that it makes sense that you would have more consistency in the naming of warm color groups across languages because those are more relevant to what you're doing, because that's more likely to see an object, a salient object that you need as a warm color as opposed Mm -hmm. to a cool color.
1: Okay. So, like, if you're cooking, you're more likely to be using warm colors than you are.
0: Yeah, and if you think about, like, across um, history, if you think about the first time humans expressed themselves artistically, it was usually with ochre. Which is red or yellow or brown, depending on where you found it. Sometimes white. So, um, yeah, and you know, pots were kind of warm colored. You didn't know, yeah, see a lot yeah. of blue or green showing up until much later.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess also just processing those colors uh, took a lot more um, technology.
0: Yes, yeah. So making a blue pigment did take a bit more technology. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was really cool to learn that there are similarities in how we name colors, especially since I said I don't feel like there's a lot of similarity between Greek and English color names.
1: Yeah, uh, but like, for example, uh, lemon is not an orange.
0: I'm not talking about the fruit. I'm talking about the color name.
1: Oh, yeah, but I'm talking about the color names for the fruit. So just like Greek and English, like we don't use the word lemon in English to denote a color.
0: No, but you're not, you're, I think we we're coming at this from a very different place. Okay. Because for me, so the English word for orange is orange. Mm-hmm. The Greek word for orange is portakali. There's nothing in portakali that will help you remember that that's orange. Whereas French is l'orange, so it sounds like English, so it's easier to remember.
1: Uh, yes. yes.
0: Yeah. And same thing, like yellow, Greek, kichrino, is, ve- yeah. is not very similar to yellow
1: no no but I think that's a linguistic thing and I don't know if it has to do with color categorization
0: no I'm not talking about categorization I was just talking about the color names for that particular statement I'm sorry it was confusing for you
1: it was a little confusing I
0: think you might need another Nespresso
1: (laughs) yes yes which is brown warm color
0: anyway all right so um do you want to do a glossary
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Additive color theory. That's the color theory that explains how light creates color by adding red, blue, and green and ends in white. Subtractive color theory is for mixing pigments and starts with the white canvas and then adds color to get to black. Do you want to take cones?
1: Uh, Yes. Cones are cells that convert photons into... A signal that can be measured by a bipolar cell
0: all right and wavelength
1: wavelength is akin to frequency or the inverse of frequency of a um, sound wave or a light wave or any frequency you want to measure
0: all right so for our fun cocktail party facts you can ask somebody if they know which category of color is most conserved across cultures
1: Okay. It's warm colors. Okay, cool.
0: And which color theory starts with white and ends in black?
1: Yes. Do you remember which one? It yes, the subtractive. Yes.
0: So thank you again for listening to this season premiere of Eye. Yeah. As season always, two. many thanks to my co-host and audio engineer and occasionally confused <laughs> husband, <Yeah>, Demos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Bertie. You can follow us all over social media at LuxSciPod. Definitely give our YouTube channel a follow since we've been posting weekly cocktail and science discussions. They're not weak
1: cocktails. They're weekly. Cocktails. Yes, they're
0: certainly not weak. And some videos from around Greece and our Lux LuxSci field trips. Mm-hmm. Your assignment for the next two weeks. Leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: I just check. Check the happiness. Check. Or unhappy. I, either review is good. Yeah.